Well, this morning we have the privilege to go back to the Gospel of John. And we have been out of the Gospel of John for over two months now. And uh, so this morning um, I want to just kind of make sure that we back up and take a look at this this gospel and uh, and try to remind ourselves of some of the things that we've learned. If you knew, you're new here and you haven't heard this yet, yet this will kind of help you come to grips with where we are and, and we'll get a running start at this. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 15 starting at verse 18. And I want to just remind you of some things that we already know and, or you may be learning for the first time, but John is unique from the other three gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. And if you just look at that word, you can see what it means. Sin, optic, it means coming from the same perspective or the same view. They're written almost in, you know, in parallel. They, they're almost organized similarly. And, but John is unique from these other three Gospels. In, in fact, 93% of the material contained in the Gospel of John is unique to the Gospel of John, which is just amazing. Uh, and so, also, John is not written to a specific audience as the synoptics are. For example, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew is written primarily to Jewish, uh, a Jewish community. And so that's why we see a lot of prophecies uh, and the fulfillment of those prophecies in Matthew. Mark is, uh, is written to, or Luke is written to uh, a Gentile or largely a Greek audience. And that's why he demonstrates the power of God. And uh, Mark is written to a Roman audience. And, and it seems to us that, that John is not really written to a specific audience as the synoptics were. But it was written to address specific issues. In fact, one in particular, and that is the deity of Christ which was being challenged. And so the Apostle John basically takes that on and wants to make a case for why we can believe that Jesus is very God, that he is the Son of God, and that he was sent for the sins of the world. And if you remember, the theme verse of the Gospel of John is in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And they say this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Life by believing. And that, that is, in fact, the, uh, the title of this sermon series, even though we're four weeks out of it or five weeks out of it. Uh, in fact, the word believe occurs 98 times in the Gospel of John. So if you were to look just simply by the amount of word used to try to understand what is it that John is getting at, it's very clear. He wants us to believe and that through that belief to have life in his name. Uh, as we kind of looked at the construction of the book, uh, it's beautifully arranged. In fact, Merrill Tenney, a uh, New Testament scholar, has likened the organization of the book uh, to that of, of a symphony. It's just, a, just, I think, a great picture. It has a symphonic construction to it, and that is that there are multiple layers uh, of this particular gospel. And, and uh, right from the opening verse, John is affirming the deity of Christ, and that sort of comes across as the initial theme, much like a composer at just some of the very uh, beginning movements of, a, of an orchestral arrangement would, would have a beginning theme that you would then kind of hear threaded throughout the, the symphony and developed, and the same thing happens in this beautiful gospel. And so right in, the, right in the first verse, we see his intention to affirm the deity of Christ. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. 
And so we see that beginning theme there. We also understand that the, the book, you could almost arrange it in sort of two movements if I can continue to use sort of the symphonic theme there. Uh, the first movement or the first 12 chapters of the book uh, we call the book of signs. And largely because what we see there is Jesus' public ministry. And we see signs of his power and signs that authenticate his deity for the public at large. And that really is demonstrated strongly in the first 12 chapters. In chapters 13 through 21, we call that the book of glory. And Jesus' emphasis in his ministry changes at that point. Instead of being, you know, really directed to the public at large, it becomes more narrow and more specific, especially to his disciples. As he begins to prepare them for his absence and prepare them for his death and prepare them for the ministry that they would have uh, when he was gone. And so that's kind of how the book is arranged, the two large movements there. And we've also talked about some of the literary features that are planted into the book. And again, it's just beautifully and and creatively arranged. Uh, Some of those are this. We've talked about seven signs. The seven signs that are uh, embedded in the book. And basically these signs are miracles. Seven miracles uh, that John wants to emphasize. And we see the first one in Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana, if you remember that. And then these miracles escalate in significance and importance, culminating or or kind of a crescendo to kind of keep the uh, musical terminology here, a crescendo of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so we see these seven signs escalating in significance and importance. And then we also see another literary feature in the book, the seven I am statements of Jesus. Uh, You'll you'll hear him say that, you know, I am... uh, I'm the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. And, and the construction of those statements is really significant because when Jesus uses that form, I am, he's hearkening back to something in Israel's past. If you remember when we went through the book of Exodus and Moses was tasked to go and to retrieve Israel out of Egyptian slavery and he sort of protested to God, wait a minute, if I go and they ask me, you know, what God is sending you to me, what am I supposed to tell them? And God gave Moses the instructions, tell them, I am. And so as Jesus makes the statement, I am, he's saying something loud and clear to these people. He is giving a specific, a specific reference to his deity. In addition to that, the second part of those constructions, he gives a description of his ministry and his role. I am the good shepherd. And so that resonated with this sort of agrarian community. Uh, I am the light of the world. And so those things talked about who, who he was, not only in his deity, but in the way that he related to people. One of the other literary features that we see in the book, uh, we've talked about the festival cycles, if you remember this. Uh, frequently in the book of John, in fact, much of the material is focused around Jerusalem. And a lot of times what brought Jesus back to Jerusalem were certain festivals. Maybe it would be Passover or Sabbath or Feast of Tabernacles or something like that. And so very often through the book we'll see a statement. It was this particular feast or it was the Sabbath or it was whatever. And so these are uh, kind of backdrops for a lot of Jesus' teaching. And so when Jesus will kind of use a metaphor, for example, I am the light of the world. He's reaching right into a celebration that was going on, the Feast of Tabernacles. And he's pulling imagery right out of it to teach about himself. So they're not just random illustrations that Jesus came up with out of thin air. They were exactly what the people were experiencing. When he says, I am the bread of life, he's reaching into the Passover celebration. 
And so there are very poignant illustrations based in uh, the celebration of the time. And so that's where we've been in the gospel up to this point. I just want to remind you about some of the beauty of its arrangement and how it's put together and where it takes us. And we're actually in chapter 15 uh, this morning. Again, we're going to start at verse 18. Jesus has just likened our relationship to God as a vine and, and branches. And he basically taught his disciples that from that point on, Jesus, that, that the disciples have to maintain a vital connection with Jesus in order to be rightly related to the Father. And, and in addition to that, that the work of God through the Holy Spirit would generate a spiritual life in disciples of Jesus, causing us to become a certain kind of people that would produce a certain kind of fruit and that fruit, as he specifies at the end there in verse 17, would be love. And so that's where we are. And then Jesus follows that up with verse 18, where we start this morning. He says this, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Now, I'm not sure if you've noticed this or not, but um, Christians today are not exactly heading the uh, popularity list in today's world. Um, in fact, this is a very appropriate text for this day where we do remember the persecuted church. And um, Scott Gross already preached half of my message for me this morning, and he did it in a lot shorter fashion than I'll do it. So sorry about that, but I'm a little more verbose. Um, so it's an appropriate message today. But you all have probably heard of the Christian pastor, Saeed, who is um, an Iranian pastor who's been incarcerated since 2012 uh, for his faith and for his his ministry there in Iran. Uh, this past week, my wife was sharing a story with me of um, a family in Pakistan. Uh, a whole family that was kidnapped, they were beaten, and they were burned alive because of their faith. A whole family. Um, we've heard frequently about ISIS these days and the persecution of believers that they have been um, specifically targeting. And then maybe closer to home, and, and on a lot lighter note, and I, have to, I can't even hardly make this transition without saying this, we have to acknowledge that the persecution or the hardship that you and I face or that we face in this nation pales in comparison to the persecution that's faced abroad. So let me just say that. But nevertheless, we do, we do face them, don't we? Uh, you've probably heard of um, the, I don't know, the, the shop or the chain, the Hobby Lobby, you know, when the Affordable Health Care Act came out, they protested because they as a business would have to support uh, the funding of abortions as, as a part of that. And they said, we can't do it, it's against our conscience. And so lawsuits uh, took off there and they were at threat for shutting down. Uh, recently, there was a story of a bakery in uh, Portland. I don't know if you heard about this one. And a homosexual couple came to them and said, would you uh, do our cake for our upcoming wedding? And they said, you know, I'm sorry, we're uncomfortable if that violates our conscience. We're going to choose not to do that. Uh, well, they were sued, and uh, they did go bankrupt here about a month ago. Um, maybe even closer to home, those of you who might be students uh, up at UAF, if you acknowledge yourself in your classroom as a Christian, and you acknowledge that position, you know you're going to incur a wary eye from your classmates, and very likely from your professor, and you may even be slightly targeted uh, by your professor. I've heard many stories like that. I know that's not the case in every classroom, but it is in some. And um, it, needs, it needs to be said, um, as we're moving deeper and deeper into a post-Christian era, and I think that's a pretty good description of where we are, Christians seem to be facing an increasing hostility towards them and their Christian ideology and faith. 
And I don't know about for you, but for me, this creates a little bit of a tension. And that is this. If Jesus is who he says he is, and he is Lord of all, God of the universe, and he is in control, and we are, as his followers, are simply seeking to follow his teaching and his manner of life and obedience to God, then why don't things go better for us? In other words, if we're on the winning team, why doesn't it feel like we're on the winning team? Do you ever feel that tension? Um, I think Mother Teresa, and I feel exonerated because she prayed this, and she has this prayer of complaint which says, uh, Lord, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so many enemies. So I feel, oh good, well, if Mother Teresa feels that way, I'm, I'm all right. I'm on good ground here. Um, but Jesus basically addresses that very tension in this passage that we're looking at this morning. Uh, he prepares us for the kind of reception that we as Christians can expect in this world. He reminds us that when we are hated or persecuted or when we make others around us uncomfortable because of our faith or our stance, when that happens, that we're in good company because this world hated Christ first. And so that is the title of this message and uh, the first point here, and that's this. We're in good company. There we go. Verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. And so Jesus is making a fairly simple point here, and that is this, that his followers can expect the same kind of treatment that he himself received. And then he kind of goes on to describe the mindset of those who are antagonistic against him and why they react this way, why this is the case. And quite simply, the reason he gives is this, they don't know God. It's kind of like, duh, don't be surprised. They don't know that God has sent me. And so he basically cites what we might call the ignorance of the unbelievers. And now here's the thing that I want to address. And this is going to be potentially a really uncomfortable message for a lot of people. But, you know, that's what we pastors do. We stick our head in the lion's mouth. So. But it seems to me that Christians increasingly are responding to the lack of knowledge of God in our culture and our society and they're responding to this and to the results that come out of it more with anger than they are with grief and compassion. And I want to address that this morning. It seems to me that too often Christians are standing in judgment of the unbelieving world. And when we look at the unbelieving, those who don't know Christ, we look at their values, we look at their sexual practices, we look at their political stance, and we tend to look upon them with disgust rather than looking on them with compassion. And I want to ask you the question this morning. In fact, I have a series of questions that I hope will create a little unrest in you, and that's this. Christian, what is your attitude toward the unbelieving world? It seems to me that Christians are growing in their frustration as they look upon the unbelieving world, and we have an increasing antagonism, even hatred, 
Instead of seeing the world as people that God loves. People who do not yet know the radical goodness of God. And we, I'm seeing more and more anger and hostility instead of engaging these people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to illustrate this in a way. Now, you've got to listen carefully or you're going to misunderstand what I'm saying this morning. So please hear this carefully. You've heard the story about, uh, maybe some of you have heard the story about some pastors in Houston recently. If you haven't, let me sort of bring you up to speed on it. A couple weeks ago, conservative news um, sources were reporting that, that an openly outspoken lesbian mayor of Texas subpoenaed sermons from several pastors in her town because of negative remarks that they had made. I don't know if you saw that headline. That's the, that's the headline as I first saw this story. Um, and the Christian world, as you know, is sort of outraged at this, and many fearing the loss of religious liberty, including myself, were sort of riveted by what was happening here and concerned about these reports. Uh, this woman, the mayor of Houston, her name is Anise Parker, received all kinds of criticism. In fact, even the attorney general got involved. Um, and Christians responded to this, this report. What they ended up doing was uh, they ended up filling her office with boxes filled of sermons and Bibles in a cheeky way of saying, if you're going to demand our messages, then we're going to smother you with them. Now, here's, here's the thing I want to... This was misreported by the conservative media. And let me tell you what actually happened here. There was an ordinance on the ballot in Houston that would allow gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgendered folks to use whichever bathroom... Uh, in the community that they identified with. Okay, so that was the issue that was going on. And I'm not going to comment about that particular ordinance because that's not my point this morning. But apparently these pastors in town did comment about it and they commented about it allegedly in their sermons from the pulpit and they used their pulpit to persuade their congregation to sign petitions, to petition this thing. And I would say if they did that, that they misused their pulpit. We have the privilege of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And instead, I think they embraced the political agenda from their pulpit. In so doing, they made that speech act subject to lobbying laws. And so the state, in looking to see what had happened here, in order to discover, they, they brought those, they, or they requested those sermons or subpoenaed them so that they could see if those signatures that were gained were gained in an unlawful way. That was the story. The subpoenas that were issued by the city attorney and not, in fact, by the mayor, uh, I think is unfortunate here because now this mayor has been vilified by the conservative news outlets more for her sexual identity than her actual involvement initially. Here's why I bring up this provocative story. This is the question I want you to consider. What are the chances that this woman, Anise Parker, comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ if she is not already? I would say slim to none. And it seems to me that the Christian world responded in fear and anger instead of sadness and compassion. And, and I, and I want to just, I want to bring this up and I want to challenge this with something here. Christians, you need to get used to something. We're not going to be loved by the world. Our stances and our convictions that are sourced in the scriptures are going to be unpopular and they're going to create hostility. We're not going to be comfortable in this world. We're going to increasingly find ourselves as aliens and strangers. That's how we're described, right? 
aliens and strangers in this world. That is the inescapable trajectory that we are on. That is what the scriptures say. In fact, anytime I go to Portland, I absolutely feel like an alien and a stranger. Anybody with me on that? When I land, I get off the plane, I think, where have I gone? You know, this place is different. In fact, the mantra of Portland is, keep Portland weird. And to Portlanders, I would say, well done, <laughs> you know, mission accomplished. Uh, man, I feel out of place there. But Christ tells us that we have been chosen out of this world. And that's why we have some of this hostility. It's absolutely incredulous to me that we would expect to be comfortable here or that we would be well liked. If we stand, if we stand with the scriptures and with what it says, this is going to be an uncomfortable place for us to inhabit. Um, and I want to remind us too that we have been sent as missionaries to a lost and dying world, not as adjudicators of God's justice. You and I are on a rescue mission, armed with the love of Christ and the gospel. And that is our privilege as the community of faith. And maybe, maybe more right now than ever, is it important that the world can look at us and see the conspicuous and observable love of Christians one for another and for the lost world. That they would see our love and our compassion for them. Understand this, that our primary methodology, our primary methodology is not politics. Our primary methodology is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus died for sinners. And that's us too. And so don't forget, Christian, that though the world may anger us and disappoint us and frustrate us, understand God loves this world. He tells us this in Romans 5.8, For God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, in the thick of it, Christ died for us. Understand also, in the short term, Christians, the Bible says that we'll lose. We're going to lose the battle, but God wins the war. Because he will return and he will exercise his rightful prerogative to judge the world and he will set everything to rights. Our mission is not to make a perfect world here and now. It's to rescue as many as we can before this world is destroyed. And so I just want to encourage you, church, make sure you're on the right mission. I want to ask you to consider your attitude towards the unbelieving world. When Jesus looked upon the crowds, he was filled with contempt. He was filled with compassion. Jesus was known, his nickname around town, friend of sinners. Could you be accused of that? When they were in the throes of killing him, he said, Father, forget them. No. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus saw lost sinners who were ignorant of God and he was moved with compassion. What actually angered Jesus was religious people and religious leaders who made the grace of God inaccessible for sinners who needed it. So we have to understand something. We have to re, uh, something we need to remember about our message, the gospel that we share with people too, is, is this. The gospel actually convicts people before it delivers them. We have an unpopular message, at least on the front end. The gospel is bad news before it's good news. 
It's initially offensive. And I think, again, that's why the observable love for Christians is, of Christians, one for another and for the lost world, is so important. If someone doesn't accept the grace of God and the sacrifice for Christ on their behalf, then they are continuing to stand under the conviction and the judgment of God. And let's just say that's an uncomfortable place to be. And so as ambassadors who are sharing this message with the lost and dying world, we're absolutely going to be targets of their animosity and their their anger that is directed for Christ, but it's going to be delivered upon us. A world that's simply looking for the pound of flesh that they can get at since Jesus isn't here. That will be us. And as we face that kind of scorn and that persecution and that trouble, I think our attitude simply needs to be this. We need to consider it a privilege to suffer for Christ. A privilege to suffer for Christ. There's a great story in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, and I encourage you to look at it later. We have the apostles who are sharing the gospel boldly, and they're basically arrested, and the religious leaders are trying to figure out what to do with them. They're having a debate about it. Finally, they're convinced by one of the leaders to let him go but not before beating them severely. And in verse 41 of, the chap- of chapter 5 of Acts, it says this, The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. There is the attitude of Christians. We're not to be looking for the path of least resistance, but willing to suffer for the name. Another thing that we see here, we get this encouragement that not only are we in good company when we suffer, because Jesus suffered, uh, but we understand that we're in this together as well. Look at verse 23. Whoever hates me, hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And as I read this, one of the impressions that I get is this, that we don't suffer alone. We don't suffer alone. Here in this particular picture, we get this, we get this great glimpse of the unity of the triune God. The triune God is always working in community. And though each member of the triune God is not interchangeable with another, they are unified in mission and purpose so much to the point that what happens to one happens to each one. And so Jesus is able to say, when they persecute me, when they hate me, they hate the Father as well. And and I think what we see here is that we sort of get swept into this union as well as we take on the mission of God and as we bear persecution and hatred and anger and animosity from the unbelieving world, we understand that we're not bearing this alone, but we bear this with the triune God. In fact, when Saul of Tarsus was confronted by the risen Christ as he was on his way on the road to Damascus, consider the words that Jesus shared with him. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul was persecuting Christians, right? Killing them for their faith. But Jesus took it as a personal offense. Why do you persecute me? And so just remember, Christian, when we face that, whether it's in the classroom or whether it's at work or whether it's abroad or whether your life is put on the line, we don't suffer alone. But in some way, The triune God suffers with us in that or is persecuted with us in that. 
I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Just beautifully describes this situation we find ourselves in. He says, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are, the, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. And Paul describes this tension that we find ourselves in. We share this message, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to some, it is, yes, it is life. I've been lifted up out of my sin and delivered and and reconciled and and made to have a right relationship with God because of Jesus. And to others, all they hear is judgment. You're a sinner and you're under God's wrath unless you respond. And at the same time, we are in this dual relationship with the people around us, constantly held in tension with this world and with the church. And sometimes it feels like your arms are going to get ripped right out of the sockets, aren't they? I think if you're feeling that, you're in the right position. (laughs) You're doing it just right. We're also encouraged here that we don't testify alone as we share the good news of Jesus Christ with people. We don't do this alone. I think too often we're afraid to open our mouth. Can I ask you the question, when was the last time you articulated the gospel to someone? In words. We hear a lot about lifestyle evangelism. When was the last time you put it to words to someone that you deeply loved? who was stuck in their sin. And I think too often we're afraid to do it. We feel like, I'm not very articulate. I don't have any training. I'm not sure if I'll be able to answer the questions that they might ask. And I think we forget something, and that is this. The Holy Spirit is alive and well, faithfully executing His ministry constantly. And one of His primary ministries, we're told in the Scriptures, is to convict the world of sin and righteousness. In other words, the Spirit of God is already cultivating the soil for you to share Christ with. He's already convicting people of sin. He's already bringing that to their, their attention. There's already an uneasy conscience there. The Holy Spirit's job is to do that. He's also already at work revealing Christ. It's a testimony that the Holy Spirit is giving to them. And can I just ask you to think, as Alaskans, think of the privilege that we have to live here and to see the testimony of God in the natural world around us. Have you seen the full moon the last couple of, couple of nights? Have you seen the aurora this year? You, you watch the salmon run back to their spawning grounds. How do they know to do that? You see the intricacy and the beauty of the created world. You look just at the human body. Look at the the reproduction that is able to occur in the human body. Think about the fact that the human body is self-healing. God has made us to heal from illness and, and, and injury. That's amazing. And when you consider all of these things, I, I'm I believe that the most avowed atheist has an uneasy conscience about their views. In the back of their mind, they're wondering. How is all of this so beautifully arranged? So understand that the Holy Spirit is already at work convicting people of sin. The Holy Spirit is already at work revealing Christ to people. And he is always at work in you, empowering you to what you can't do on your own. Christian, don't be afraid to open your mouth and share the gospel with someone. Don't be afraid. As we transition here, 
Uh, I think this is an unfortunate chapter break in our Bibles. Um, I think the, this message really continues on in, in uh, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16. And, and, and uh, John basically continues his treatment of persecution. But I think the focus shifts from the cause of persecution to the response of the disciples to that persecution. And I think we're kind of encouraged you to remember that, hey, we're in this for God. We're not in this for ourselves. Look at 16.1. All of this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. And so here's, I think, the encouragement we get here. First of all, don't have false expectations, Christian. Don't have false expectations. It seems to me that Jesus wants to warn the disciples in advance so they will not be discouraged because of false expectations, so that they won't abandon the faith. But even that advice is based on a premise that we're in this primarily for the glory of God and of his name, not our own. There's too much prosperity gospel in our world. There's too much religious humanism in our world that says, hey, if you just do this, it's really better off for you. That's true, but that's not primary. What's primary is we follow Jesus because he is Lord of all. Persecution is the heritage of the church, and it really ought to be the expectation of the, the church in our age going forward. Persecution um, we see of the early disciples, especially the Apostle Paul, left for dead on one occasion. The epistle of James was specifically written to Christians who had to flee Jerusalem because they were so persecuted there, and they went out into the remote countryside. First and second Peter were written in response to persecution, in the one instance from inside the church and the other instance from outside the church. All of the disciples died as martyrs for the faith. In fact, it was persecution that was responsible for dispersing the local church who maybe didn't want to go as far out as, as they ought to have, as God wanted them to. And maybe the principal example, as we've already seen in the beginning, is this. Jesus, our Savior and Lord, whom we follow, was persecuted to the point of death. Why would we expect that we might incur something different? 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Christian, you need to have the right expectation. Expect and endure persecution. It is coming. I love the words of Thomas Akempis who says this, He who knows how to suffer best shall keep the greatest peace. Or maybe in a more lighthearted way, we could go with uh, the dwarf Gimli from Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, when he says... Uh, Certainty of death, small chance of success, what are we waiting for? <laughs> well, he's kind of right. Um, certainty of death, that's going to happen at some point. Large chance of success. Uh, not in the short term, but in the long term, we win. And so as you incur persecution, Christian, whether it's great or small, I want to remind you three things. We're in good company. Christ suffered. We're in this together. We don't suffer alone. And ultimately, we're in this for God and for the glory of his name. So let's pray.
Lord, I want to ask uh, this morning that you would help us listen carefully to your spirit as you're directing each one of us with what we've heard from your word. Uh, God, if our attitude is one of anger and hatred for the world, uh, would you change it? Such that we would love the world that is lost and does not know you. God, certainly as we look around and, and we see the condition of people, we see their lostness and we see what it leads them to and it does anger and it does grieve us. But God, may we be moved to compassion and mobilized to share the gospel. May they have an understanding of you because we know that that is the solution that fixes all things. A right relationship with you. God, keep us on the right mission. May we be courageous to have the gospel on our lips, to share it with those you've entrusted to us to share it with. May we have confidence that the Holy Spirit is already at work cultivating the soil, revealing, revealing sin and convicting of that, and revealing Christ and empowering us to share. So may we not hold back, give us courage. God, for those who are suffering in this world, for the sake of your name, help them to suffer well. And when it's our turn, help us to do the same. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.